Hello and welcome to uh, Making Team Wild Peril with me, Jet Shepherd, and joining me this week, as ever, is my co-host, Alan Kakar. How you doing? Not bad. Is that how I normally start? So I'm yeah, it's all good. Isn't it? good enough. Does yeah. it, I think you maybe missed out a little bit, but it's fine. Maybe. I think I normally say what the podcast is You can't about. remember no one else will. You couldn't? Yeah. Well, we talk about films and other shit that we decide to wander across. I mean, you couldn't even remember how we recorded episodes five minutes ago. No, I didn't begin. Was it been like three months or something? Yeah, it was July, so. Is it July? Uh, well, for, sure. if, if sooner than I uh, thought. I thought it was way back in like May or something, or June. No, maybe it was June, I don't know. Yeah, anyway, it doesn't matter. We're back now. Doing just a catch-up episode this week? Yeah. To be fair, I could probably do a few catch-up episodes because I've seen a lot of films and other stuff worth talking about yeah uh, so have I yeah, yeah. do you want to shall we get going then yeah alright uh, do you want to how we go are we, do you want to go first sorry I'm really tired I, I my mind's not really working today do you want to uh, go talk about a film you've seen first um, that's yeah, how it normally works isn't it one of us talks yeah. about a film yeah are you, <laughs> right. sh- you sure you want to record yeah I'm alright okay um so I've just actually come back from seeing um, Midnight Cowboy for the first time uh, at the BFI, which was interesting and, yeah, totally kind of unexpectedly affecting, really. It was, it, 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 have you seen it before? Uh, no. The only thing I know about it is the scene with uh, Dustin Hoffman walking across the road. That's Midnight Cowboy. I think Cowboy, I know the one you mean, yeah. Yeah. That's quite funny. Oh, it, it starts off quite kind of funny and... Um, and sort of very kind of like almost light-hearted but you get the sense through kind of flashbacks and things like that that there's something more going on it's basically starring John Voight who is unrecognisable but he's so young but John Voight being the kind of um, he's he's one of those people just in loads of different movies like um, he'll just pop up in in, in different things and you're just like oh it's it's that guy from that thing like he'd be in like Holes as the um Big Inspector, which is where I remember him uh, best from. But then he's also been in films like Heat, National Treasure, and, and I think he's in the first Mission Impossible too. So he basically plays this character called um, Joe Buck, who is um, has has a remarkable uh, self conviction of his um, sex appeal, basically, and quits his job as a dishwasher in Texas to head towards uh, New York City hoping that he's going to try and sort of seduce some rich um, spinster and end up kind of sorted for life. So that's, um, it, he also thinks he's a cowboy, but he, he well, he he, st- he stars himself on a, on a cowboy, uh, as a cowboy. And um, when he goes to New York, it's obviously finds it a little bit more difficult than he, he first realised. And that's when he meets um, Enrico Rizzo, who's played by Dustin Hoffman. Ratzo is, is his nickname, and they, they form a sort of alliance. Rizzo's is sort of like, very like, he's described here as a, as a Dickensian layabout, which is probably very accurate. And um, yeah, so it, that um, that becomes a kind of alliance of sorts, and it, it, they try and hustle, and, and things just get. And yeah, it's like it kind of becomes this kind of quite 
downtrodden story, which I won't reveal much more of here. But it, it won the Best Picture in 1969, 50 years ago. Um, it also won Best Director for John Schlesinger, who is kind of... I don't really know what to, what to think of him as a director because I, I, I've I've seen a few of his films. Marathon Man is is his, probably his second most famous film, along with uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday. And Marathon Man doesn't really didn't really do. I liked it, but it didn't really do it for me in the way that it has done for a lot of people. It kind of taps into that kind of uh, you know mid nineteen seventies US anxiety and suspicion of of the state, which is quite interesting, but. It's not. It's got quite a. Its reputation precedes, I think, basically on the on the basis of a few scenes. And here, I think this is absolutely fantastic. It's it's really quite experimental. It's a lot more kind of abstract than I thought. And Dustin Hoffman delivers probably the best performance I've seen from him. And, and that's saying quite a lot considering his his body of work. Sounds good. You said you're going to see um, Ad Astra this week. Yeah, I changed my mind. Uh, fair enough. Are you still planning on seeing Ad Astra? Uh, yeah. Well, I've got a free ticket, so. Oh, fair enough. I won't uh, spot. I won't review that film this week then. Might as well wait till you've seen it. So, so what sort of genre is Midnight Cowboy then? It seems this. Uh, I'd probably call it a drama. I think um, it's one of those films. Maybe a body movie, but I don't know. It, it, it's um, it's just it, it sort of comes from a time when like you realise and how rare it is now when like f- films were not necessary were, were categorised not on the basis of any sort of genre. Um, or kind of marketable category, but on the, on the basis of of quality, it's you know, it, it and I think that helps in its favour. It's 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 kind of it's very difficult to think of what someone's expectations of this film would be at the time, it winning the best picture Oscar notwithstanding. But what it's allowed, what what it, it's clearly made by someone who's had a, a large amount of creative control and is definitely kind of. I mean, it's based on the book, but it, it's kind of very author, authorial, is that the word? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so um, very much kind of, uh, I wouldn't want to kind of tie it down into, into a particular genre. Oh, so, sounds great. Uh, I've just got back from Simile. I've just got back from seeing uh, The Farewell, the, the Farewell, which is uh, uh, the new film by uh, Lulu Wang. Um it's based partly based on her own uh, her own family. It's it's about uh, Billy, who's been who's uh, sort of in her mid twenties, been growing up in uh, America, but she's originally from China, and she her family find out that her her grandmother has got a, a, ter- a terminal lung cancer, stage four lung cancer, and is going to die in a matter of months. But they because of uh, what's sort of described as sort of a Chinese cultural thing, they decide uh, not to tell her because they think it's uh, she can live a, she'll live a happier life for her last few months if they don't tell her. Whereas uh, Billy, having grown up in America with this Western uh, ideology, it thinks it's sort of cruel and harsh not to tell her. And so you just it's a very odd picture. And I, I for the I, I mean I only saw it a couple of hours ago. And I'm still not entirely sure what to make of it because it does. It is a it's a drama, and it does kind of. Um, there are a lot of mood whiplashes between drama and comedy. Sometimes we're in the same sentence. Like it's got a very sort of. Sometimes a very sort of dark sense of humour in its subject matter, but it's also very sort of light-hearted and stupid. And it kind of, I think it what sort of makes it amazing is how sort of perfectly 
it's it uh, encapsulates a family dynamic in the fact that there are these it is about grief and about the or maybe not even grief about the sort of um the thought of grief and the um the 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 the, the, the ideas around death and mortality and yet it also managed to do it in such a sort of light-hearted and sincere way because it's not you know when uh because you know obviously when a when a family member is ill and is uh you know dying it is a very sad occasion but it's not there are also the sort of happy memories and uh that are associated with it as well and it does tie into the the fact of sort of uh familiar love and the idea of growing up and moving away for because uh the grandmother, both her children have moved away to different countries and she's left on her own. And um, it's about sort of the, the, the coming together of, of the, these two sides of family again under the... Because because they don't want to tell her that she's that she's dying in order to see her one last time. They uh, they thought uh, uh, Billy's cousin is forced to get married earlier than he would have liked to. Uh, back in her, their hometown, so they've got an excuse to go back there. Well, who's Billy? Uh, Billy is uh, the main character. Uh, I can't remember the actress who. Uh, Aquafina. Yeah, Aquafina. That's it. Um, uh, and so it's so you've got these. It's kind of both a humorous situation that kind of sums up the film. In fact, the reason they're going there is both a humorous situation of uh, her cousin sort of being forced into marriage or forced to marry his girlfriend. For, a lot sooner than he would have liked to in order so that they have this excuse but at the same time the real reason that uh um that they're going there is to basically say goodbye to a, a family member who doesn't even know they're dying it I, I think it does it does really encapsulate what it's like to i mean i think i think when you get to your mid-20s it's rare not to have had a a close family member uh pass away and it's all i think also it, it encapsulates particularly what it's like to have a grandparent or uh or a family member who you're close enough that you can miss them and their death would be uh really tragic to you but you don't really have a say in like their in like the end of their life or their or the arrangements after they die that the uh billy feels very trapped between the fact that you know, she has this deep love for her grandmother, and yet there's more senior members of family. You know, her father, who's and her uncle, who have a bigger say over what to do with uh, their grandmother's life and how to, uh, you know, whether or not they should tell her. And so it's kind, of, it kind of, it it's it brilliantly sort of encapsulates what it's like to have all these different, all these different sort of uh generations but also all these different cultural influences over one set of uh interrelated people uh over the course of two weeks or uh well, so it's, it's, it's a week that this film set over so did you like it yeah i really loved it, it mm-hmm. um yeah okay. no sorry it just i think what really got me is just how how perfectly it captures the it, it, how how perfectly it manages to tread the line between comedy and drama, and it there's sometimes even like within a line or a couple of lines there could be a huge 
uh, whiplash between a, you know incredibly sad moving moment and then it would be laugh out loud hilarious and so it always kind of keeps you on that feet in that sense and i wasn't quite sure what to make of it but I, the ending which i obviously won't spoil is so sort of satisfying and rounds up the entire story very uh nicely that i i think that you know that made that made me realize how great a film it was but i still need you know i saw it a couple of hours ago i still need time to sort of process it to give a, a more thorough a more thorough uh opinion of it i think that sounds like you've been pretty thorough. Oh, um, yeah, maybe. Um, so, I mean, in, in terms of... I mean, Aquafina's someone that interests me a lot because she's kind of had a very unconventional rise to kind of fame and, and to doing quite what you'd call serious movies from having started off out as a, a YouTube rapper, a comedian, and then moving into kind of... Uh, quite, uh, for me, she was one of the best things about both films that she's been in that I've seen her, Crazy Roots Asians and um, also... Um, also, Ocean's Eight. Um, was she very? How was she in this film? Oh uh, no, she was really good in this film. It's a very sort of understated performance because she's. It the, the character doesn't say a lot, and you know it's it's very a lot of her, a lot of her, um, a lot of, sort of her character development and um, her uh, her performance is. Is has to be done through not what she says but what she doesn't say, and sort of how she reacts to all the people around her, and so she, you know, it's, she's obviously incredibly talented, is able to sort of show, show, sort of show how she, so sort of how her character changes and reacts to the the constantly evolving situation around her through her through her uh, through her lack of um, speech and how how she doesn't say what she thinks but how she sort of how she manages to both internalize it but show the audience her truth feelings at the same time does that make sense or am i just speaking rubbish uh, i didn't understand it but... uh well I, I, she, I, she acts well when she's not talking and she acts well when she talks well no i mean she she acts well because you know the character is is well, it's an understated performance she's not she manages to convey the character what the character thinks not through what she says and does but what she uh doesn't say yeah, I, 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 can't, I don't know how to explain it. It's too late. It's a good performance. Yeah. Cool. Great. Um, nice. Shall I, shall I say what, I, what I'll see next? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So I'll switch to TV because I've just kind of caught up with it to, up to date quite recently, which is with the new season of uh, Succession, which I spoke about in, uh, when the first season was sort of first got going on, on, on this podcast, actually quite a while ago now it must have been it's sort of strange because we're, we're seeing kind of second seasons for a lot of um very strong hbo shows now which is which is interesting i mean we've had the juice you know we've also had uh, big little lies i think there's a season of season two of uh, sharp objects coming out soon as well so it's um it's quite fertile in the in the hbo stable which is quite interesting because obviously they've had the hbo now is 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 evolved so much kind of with so much gusto compared to HBO five years ago, it's it's remarkable how they kind of maintain that level of quality and and also kind of um, production values and things like that in the in the streaming era. But I suppose that's a separate conversation. Um, there's also um, so Succession is about basically it's described on on Wikipedia as a satirical comedy drama, but 
it's it's very difficult to draw the line between what is satire and what is and what is actually kind of a little representation of what power is like in in modern company and particularly in a, a modern family company so this is basically uh, around the roy family who own a global media and hospitality empire um it, it, some have said rupert murdoch and some have said um what's their name there's um the cbs family um, um, um do you know their names uh no um, it's the CBS dynasty, but um, they are um, so. So basically, it's it's, um, it's 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 got a lot of parallels with, with those two groups, but uh, it feels very Murdoch-like um, because of the emphasis on news. And so Logan Roy runs basically what is Fox, what is near enough a kind of Fox News um, uh, thing. And the, the first season was fantastic, and it was really, really kind of. It was a bit far-fetched at times, particularly towards the end. And what happens is basically, it's I'm not going to, I won't spoil it, but what I'll say is that it, 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 Logan Roy, who's who's played by Brian Cox in what should definitely be a kind of Emmy-winning. Well, the Emmys were last week and he didn't win, but you know, it's a very awards-worthy performance. Um, he basically plays the patriarch of the family, and his children, played by Kieran Culkin, um, also Jeremy Strong and Sarah Snook, are all fantastic. It really centres around Jeremy Strong, as basically his name's Kendall, and he kind of is what you would also what you'd um, what you'd say is a kind of sees himself as as next in line. He's very much involved in the company and corporate side of things, while Kieran Culkin's character is very much a sort of layabout. He's 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 not very smart. Neither of them are very smart, but he's definitely very very dumb. He, he uh, and and he's kind of just he he's around the family and he he gets given these kind of symbolic roles. And um, Sarah Snook's character Shiv is is kind of she's kind of the rebel and in a political sense as well. Like she backs a what's to, she work she works with a kind of Bernie Sanders type analog left wing character, a left wing politician who's running for president, and he she kind of wants to disassociate herself from the family. Um, so that's a kind of dynamic between those characters, uh, and and what happens is basically it's it, what follows is kind of it's the world of corporate backstabbing and cutthroat corporate culture. So um, it's very interesting to kind of see how, how, what areas it touches on as a media company. So first of all, in terms of news, it's like well, how is news going to stay? How the power of news and and how that's kind of enforced through the kind of very top of the family, but also things like um, acquiring new media upstarts. So there's a there's a quite similar kind of BuzzFeed Vice hybrid that they try and buy out at the, in the very first episode and things like that. And also very, very much kind of like crises, crises that kind of rock the company, or which you know post uh, you know which there's no such thing as a corporate scandal so bizarre I mean this year even even this last month has kind of shown that so it is really kind of entertaining but this this second season takes things from quite a dramatic end point to the first season which involves like a lot of a lot of different weird very strange things quite sinister things and then kind of moves them into the, the second season which is by all accounts a lot better it's like the pace is a lot quicker the dynamics that it kind of grew in the first episode between kind of obviously it's called succession which means that there's going to be a succession it is about the kind of succession of the family company um it, it that kind of reaches a new kind of level here because we know who the characters are there are several chess pieces on the board now and it's it's really kind of um it's really really getting going in a, in a really good way no one knows what's going to happen and also it's quite it's very very funny 
it understands the grammar of like what it is to be a big business and the bizarre, like just the kind of super wealthy and and the kind of detachment they have from like everyday life, the ridiculous um, opulence of of their lifestyle and, and how insulated they are from the rest of the world. Oh, that sounds really good. I was just looking at it and it's been, it's been, it's written by uh, Jesse Armstrong who wrote uh, Peep Show and uh, was yeah. one of the writers for the yeah. thick of it. And uh, it's produced by Will Ferrell, so it seems to have this very strong sort of satirical pedigree to it. Um, so I was just sort of it's like, what what makes it sort of different to any other sort of satire on powerful uh, media conglomerates or uh, the which? Well, I mean, um, yeah, I can't think of another satire of a media conglomerate. The closest maybe is W1A, but that's totally totally different. Like. Um, this is like it's it's very much got this it's it's a very much kind of like post Trump kind of like um kind of late late stage capitalism kind of uh monopolistic kind of um um mono- monopolistic kind of um under- like understanding of 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 kind of corporate power in America so that's that's one thing um it's quite it's also very kind of politically charged as well although it's quite it's doesn't do it doesn't really take a kind of political side it just kind of represents things in all their ugliness um what makes it different it, it, it kind of just gets it so well like the world that it creates isn't is kind of so rich and it kind of so uh, it really understands that how how like the the threats to the meat like that a media company would face and and also the kind of like there's something bizarre i i, I think there's something bizarre about corporate culture and how it kind of is like a kind of I don't want to, it's not fake, but it's very much about kind of like, you know, things happen and they're kind of re-represented, repackaged, and like it, that reflects in the way that people act and how, how people kind of interact as well. So that's kind of, they really get that and they really kind of do, do that very, very well. Oh, fair enough. Sorry, I, I, I was thinking of a, there is a, there is a film which is about something similar, but I just can't think of what it is off the top of my head. Uh, uh, it doesn't matter. Anyway, uh, no, it sounds uh, sounds interesting. What would you say is the best sort of uh, HBO second season or sequel uh, season uh, so far this year? Since we're approaching the end of the year, have there any which haven't lived up to the first season? I was a little bit touchy on Westworld second season. That was last that. year, though, wasn't it? Oh, was it last year? Yeah, I think so. Uh, well, what else has there been? I've only really seen. What, what, what else has there been? I don't know. I don't follow. Or I don't watch as much HBO as you do. Yeah. I no no. There hasn't really been any. Ah, uh, fair enough. That's good. Good track record then. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of. They are kind of known for that, aren't they? Uh. Well, yeah. I guess. But well, I don't know. I wouldn't say they're necessarily known for having second seasons which are better than their first seasons they're just known for having general generally good quality tv no yeah that's what i meant yeah yeah um so i I've, i'll do, i'll talk about something a bit different as well i uh i watch uh joint security area which is uh part chanwook's first film have you seen uh joint security area i have yeah it's quite an interesting kind of um uh, quite an interesting concept in the fact that it's very it is a fi- it's a fictitious story but it seems to be very much based within a, it's very much based within a true political landscape and seems to uh, stick very true to the 
well, as true to the politics as it possibly can throughout the entire uh, film. It's about a uh, a murder, a sort of a sort of massacre in the in a security hut on the on the North Korean South Korean border of uh, two um, two North Korean soldiers and a uh, a South Korean soldier who's just just about gets away is being accused of perpetrating it by the North Koreans, and so. North and South Koreans agreed to bring in the, uh, the I can't remember what they're called now. It's the joint, um, uh, so the, the neutral nations, uh, neutral nations, uh, uh, observation. Uh, oh, the ne- neutral agents commission. Yeah, neutral nations commission, which which are a real thing that happened at the end of the Korean War when both North and South Korea randomly chose to. Uh, two nations uh or four four nations two nations each who are kind of forced to sort of mediate the peace between north and south korea although even that sort of doesn't exist well even when this film was created it kind of no longer existed because the north koreans no longer saw it's a legitimate uh legitimate force but within the context of the film uh two swedish uh uh, no swiss a Swiss and a uh, uh, Swedish, um, uh, two uh, Swiss and Swedish investigator travel to uh, travel to Korea to to investigate this massacre and try and understand um, what happened. And it seems to it's kind of two films in one because there's it deals with the aftermath for the first and the third act, and the second second uh, act it goes into what actually happened and the build up to this event focusing on uh focusing on a uh a south korean soldier called su yuk i probably completely butchered that name uh who uh comes across these north korean soldiers and over time uh one lens of eat another which eventually leads to this massacre and it's it it's it, part time which manages to both tell a very sort of political uh, uh, macro stories of about the aftermath of the Korean War and how these two nations kind of are unable to uh, coexist peacefully d- despite how much they have in common and yet also manages to tell or even through that manages to tell this very personal story between a, a number a small number of soldiers and the friendship that develops between them over time and and the the consequences that it has on the on the bigger the bit of political uh, influences, and I think, uh, yeah, it's in, it, it shows. It's not. It's probably not. His, it's, well, it's definitely not his best film. But it definitely, having seen a lot of his later films, and then go back to the, going back to this, it's interesting to sort of see how some of the themes that he uh, he explores later on, like revenge and loss and companionship, sort of how how the how he sort of begins to explore this. Um, in this film, and you know, this is probably his only film I've seen that sort of, which takes place in a sort of realist world, where because well, I think a lot of his other films sort of have a sort of element of fantasy or at least fantastical to them, where this seems to be very much based in reality uh, and uh, and uh, and very much grounded in the political context of the time, which leads to um, which which leads to a. Uh, uh, which allows him to sort of explore uh, uh, 
a very sort of uh, what's the word a controversial issue on a very in a very sort of uh, uncontroversial way. Mm. Yeah, I can't remember enjoying it, this film that much. Really? Yeah, I just thought it was quite. It's quite. Like, it, it it was just. It just like average. Like what makes Park Chan Wook so interesting is what you said earlier there about his kind of um, ability to kind of weave together the abstract with like quite kind of per- personal and and um, often quite dark dark themes, and he, and also with a lot of style in between as well. Like it just this one seemed. I remember being all over the place. <laughs> Um, I mean, I disagree. I think it, it definitely does explore the uh, the films of of uh, the 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 film the themes you mentioned. Uh, I, yeah, I'm not saying I'm not I'm not saying it's a criticism of his other films that they're they're fantastical. That's what I like about them. But I do think it's it was interesting to see a to see a film uh, of his that is very much grounded in the real world. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it does well. And it does it does. I, I, it is definitely, it's definitely not as stylish as a lot of his later works, but I don't. I think, the, the, you know, you can see the beginnings of his that sort of his sort of style of cinematography and uh, mm. and uh, filming and like I think I think going in knowing it was one of his first films, it kind of an interesting sort of uh, interesting sort of is interesting. I think I picked up on things. That perhaps I wouldn't have picked on, or perhaps I would have had uh, Christians of if I didn't, if I did, if I wasn't so invested in his work, I didn't know. Uh, you know, it was one of his first films, or uh, uh, it was, or it was one of his films at all. Mm. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, um, yeah, I just thought it was quite kind of yeah. I don't know. He's got had made he made a couple of films before that, didn't he? Yeah. Um, um, no, made that comedy his... about the saxophonist, something like that. That's his first feature film. What the saxophonist comedy? Uh, wait a minute, is it? No, no, no. That that is the one about the saxophonist who tries to kill him. Wants to kill made himself. Made one cause... film before that. Uh, yeah. It was a, what was it called? It's about it's it made to be funny, but it's really like quite fucked up. Um, this isn't. That's not about a saxophonist. This one. I perhaps you're thinking of a later one. What did you think of the acting? Because I thought it was terrible. I think it also was a I huge think, hit in Korea. So obviously, I think the in, well, I think the English uh, when they speak English, which is maybe twenty percent of the film, maybe there's quite a lot of English dialogue for a Korean film. Uh, they, it's not, isn't it's not. They're not good at speaking English or or acting in English. Then there is. It's three actors that speak English, and neither of them uh, English is their first language. But I don't. I think. Well, I would say. I will say that I think the the second act, which is, um, which is uh, you know set set in the past and is about the Korean soldiers and their sort of day to day life. I think that's a lot stronger than the investigation that happens in uh, Act One and Act Three. And I think those actors are a lot better. And I don't know. I think maybe. There is uh, among those uh, four actors who are sort of the leads for the second act. There is, there are, their acting might come across as a bit cheesy and a bit, uh, a bit kind, a bit uh, not wooden necessarily, but a bit sort of odd. Uh, but I kind of, I think it kind of added to their character development in a sense, because I think it, they they're meant to be sort of. 
they're meant to they're meant to be sort of uh, jovial and uh, clown clownish, and so I think that I don't so I don't know if they were if it was meant to deliberately meant to be like that, but I think it kind of it wasn't as distracted as it perhaps could have been if they were playing more serious characters. Mm, yeah, that film is Saminjo. So there's two films for that. A suicidal saxophonist is pushed over the head after he discovers his wife's infidelity. It's like really not good. Do you want to uh, say your sure next, uh, um, uh, um, with the considerations of time and the fact that I haven't din- done dinner? I- I'm going to throw out a film that we've both seen that we haven't talked about yet, which is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, uh, um, I'm happy to do that. If we want to end end on that. Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, great. So yeah, um, do we need to explain what this is? Um, well, it's uh, Quentin Tarantino's new film, or was about two months ago. Was that when okay. I last saw you? That was, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, that was ages ago. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, do, do you, shall we explain what it's about? Yeah. Uh, so it's basically, do you want to explain since, uh, can do, yeah. yeah. Okay, so, yeah, sure. <laughs> So it's basically it's about um, so how how do you set this up? So basically, Hollywood in the uh, late nineteen sixties at the eclipse of what is known as the Hollywood New Wave, uh, in which uh, love is free, drugs are everywhere, and so hippies. Um, and it's kind of around this kind of swimming Hollywood is um, two characters by the name of Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth, Leonardo DiCaprio and, and Brad Pitt, respectively. Uh, Rick Dalton is a uh, character actor who kind of grew up, well, who came to fame during the age of the Westerns and is now kind of falling out of favour along with the collapse of the, of the Western. Um, and Brad Pitt is uh, his stuntman. Uh, and then we also have um, a kind of s- separate story arc that is also connected but not... Um, as tightly uh, is uh, with Sharon Tate, who is obviously Roman Polanski's wife, um, and it's about her kind of um, her life in, in Hollywood, really, with with uh, uh, with Polanski, and, and 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 that's basically it. That's basically what it's about. It kind of is a portrait of um, a, a very particular era in Hollywood, um, an era in which Quentin Tarantino would be like seven years old. So it's. Uh, 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 I think he does such a superb job of 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 bringing it to life so vibrantly and and brilliantly. Yeah, uh, you really love this film, didn't you? Yeah. Have you? Has your? Have you? Well, I mean, because we talked about this briefly when uh, we well we watched it again. We talked about it briefly when we came out of the cinema, and we both seemed to really like it. But uh, I, I still really enjoy it. And I I do want to go back and sort of reassess it, but my opinion of, of it has soured slightly since we saw it i think just thinking over uh certain elements it does uh, i do kind of uh I, I, I do have a few questions about it i think like uh shall we just go in and spoil it yeah yeah um i do like i think it does kind it kind of I think well I think kind of the, the criticism I have on it is kind of the same things that have happened the, the same criticisms I have on most of Tarantino's films since uh, the about 2000 or so since about Kill Bill uh, well one you know it, it's an obvious criticism but it is too long at like two and a half hours and it does 
there are elements which just don't seem to go anywhere and also elements that don't seem to gel together like we uh we have the uh the bruce lee the, the famous controversial bruce lee uh scene where uh uh oh what's his name what's his name uh cliff booth uh beats uh bruce lee in a fight which i think is fine because it uh it's a, he's a fictional character so i don't really you know i don't think it's really uh it's it kind of it kind of works within this fantasy world i don't really understand the controversy behind it but i do think it's quite weird that we, quite weird that we've got this scene which i think is kind of the purpose of it is to try and make uh make him seem like a likable and fun character that we want that we support but just before that scene we're told that he may or may not have killed his wife which I think is a bit of an odd juxtaposition uh, to have when we're meant to be liking this character. Are we meant to be liking this character? Are we not? You're not meant to be enjoying his company? Um, I don't think it's necessary to pass a value judgment on him. It's more about him being... I think what this film does really, really amazingly is kind of round out its characters so thoroughly and with such depth it's like it's quite astounding like we we feel like we intimately know each character particularly brad pitt's character at the end of it like that there are some scenes in them which just i I just find absolutely mind-blowing like when we first go and see his house and like the way that it kind of weaves together like the respective la lives of sharon tay rick dolson and cliff booth and and like where they all go at the end of the night and how it kind of shows all these different aspects of not only la but also their characters it's just kind of so so good whether or not we're meant to like him or not i couldn't, couldn't care less to be honest well look, i well that's the thing you've just you said that and then you sort of said how you enjoy the characters and sort of being in their presence and yeah, but that's nothing to do with whether they're good people or not. Well, no. Or whether we're meant to feel positive, or, or, or we're meant, or we're ever to um, be positive. Like be when positive I say like them. them, I don't mean as in you want to go to the pub with them. I mean enjoying their company within the course of the film. Right. Well, you and didn't so, you didn't explain that, did you? <laughs> well, it's, well, yeah. All right. Uh, but uh, I, I I think well I think that sort of brings me on to my sort of biggest criticism of the film though is that the ending kind i mean i do like i do really like the the final uh showdown between uh between uh the manson family and uh uh dalton and booth uh but it it kind of it, it took me a while to realize but thinking about it a, a couple of weeks ago i realized there's sort of no narrative conclusion to the film like it's basically a character piece like there's no there's no real plot to the film we're just meant to be understand these characters and how they develop over time and sort of how their uh their goals are sort of uh how they how they how sort of uh Dalton's goals kind of may or may not uh goals to become a famous film actor may or may not come true but there's kind of no narrative resolution to the film they just sort of have one giant uh set piece at the end and then the film kind of meanders to a close whereas i think there's no sort of there's no sort of conclusion to this um to these character arts that have been building across the the film um it's a kind of yeah i mean um if that's, I mean, I'm not if saying that's you not... necessarily have to defend. I'm not saying you have to defend it, but 
Ah, yes. I yeah, no, I'm just, I'm not, I'm yeah. just coming off. I'm, no, but I, I don't, I, I just, yeah, I think that's kind of irrelevant to what, what, I don't think it's a problem at all, but it, I, what I, what I will say is it's just kind of, it, it, what, what it reminded me of this was like, actually this, how, how kind of good it is and nice it is to go and see a film that everyone else is seeing that is something that isn't like a fucking franchise movie or that isn't sort of tied to some sort of, um, like, like larger kind of universe. It's the first time I can remember when I when like I would be with people who that aren't kind of um, like cinema cinema fanatics that would go and see a film that is kind of totally original and it's, it's fantastic to have those kind of shared conversations. Everyone I knew, everyone I know liked it. And I think there are several different reasons why people liked it, which I think kind of points to a lot of what's so good about this film. And I think. It, it, it's going to age very, very well because it, it captures so well this era of Hollywood. Uh, there's obviously a personal thing for me, which is that I really, really kind of, I've spoken about it before, but this era of Hollywood is, and I think it's kind of, as this film's come down, it sort of affirmed it really, that it kind of stood, it was such a kind of unique era for filmmaking. You had so many talented filmmakers working at the height of their powers simultaneously. And it was, you know, looking back at those films it's just like unbelievable when we saw one of them today you know it, it it's just like that that kind of artistic freedom is something that it, we should kind of really like cherish because it's not often that we really see it anymore and it in that sense it was quite sad it i think a lot of what it what cha- what is quite challenging about this film is it's a refusal to conform to things like resolutions and and it's refusal to kind of follow a kind of plot in a, in a normal way or or even or a conventional way but, but to be honest none of that really paid paid any kind of that none of that factored into my judgment or, or my enjoyment of the film at all uh yeah fair enough um yeah that's your uh prerogative i will say for i do, I do think it does manage it does manage to sort of a big, uh, 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 a great tribute to this era of Hollywood, as you said, but it does it without ever managing to distract from the story or from these characters. And I think a lot of sort of, uh, a lot of sort of, not, not, uh, I, don't, I don't know what you call them, maybe nostalgia films that sort of that do harken back to a previous time and do sort of revel in that previous time, do do so at the expense of the plot or any, without any kind of narrative justification and i think that this film uh succeeds in managing managing to uh have an interesting story and interesting characters whilst also reveling in the world that it's inhabited mm. and also and unlike a lot of uh quentin tarantino films he manages to skirt uh possible uh controversy throughout considering it's about uh Considering at the heart of it, there's a very gruesome murder of you know one of the most famous, well, one of the most famous murders in Hollywood. Yeah, I think it's sort of very. Um, yeah, no, it definitely is. I think also it kind of, yeah, it, it's just kind of it's really sort of. I don't know. I read a really interesting um, piece of um, about kind of like what happened to America. I'm reading a book as well about nineties um, independent Hollywood, and it is kind of like 
films like this don't come along very often and it's so, it's so nice to see where like everyone's seeing a film like this and being able to discuss films in a kind of different way to what kind of you know oh this was what what's going to happen after this cliffhanger or you know let's talk about another fucking theory or or something that was that was hidden in an after credit scene it's just so it'd be, like that's what i think the, the lasting impression of this film has been aside from its content is the um is just how it kind of it, it, it really kind of r- reminds me of of like of just like something that's quite unique coming out and everyone's seeing a quite nice collective experience from it which is i think quite nice yeah well i guess that's tarantino more than anything isn't it and well it's not it's not necessarily tarantino insofar as well it is insofar as he's one of the very 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 few names that can get a film like that budgeted and greenlit right well, yeah, you can just be I, like, I want to make a movie and there'll be a queue of backers. But I also think there'll be a queue of... Uh, um, there'll, be a, there'll be a queue of uh, people waiting to get into cinema as well. Like, I, of, I, of what, say again? I don't think I don't think this film would be nearly as popular if it wasn't for Tarantino's new... Uh, no, but a well-budgeted... A, a well-budgeted, strongly... Uh, strongly build in terms of the names involved uh, film of... of uh, of, of that kind of level of promotion and and public interest is is rare. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying, and I think, yeah, and that's what I'm saying because I think it's uh, it it can mainly be, uh, it can mainly be credited to the uh, director and the you know the prestige of the name on the poster. Uh, I don't know uh, how often these this sort of film is going to come around, or you know who the next Tarantino will be. I suppose the only sort of director who manages to put in an audience for a large audience and get uh, uh, a number of backers for uh, for their films uh, you know without it being tied to a franchise of some kind is uh, Christopher Nolan at the moment Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg I want, no I wouldn't say those two really so no. Steven Spielberg couldn't come up with an original idea and, be like, and get it greenlit no, you could get green there, but I don't know how popular. Uh, I don't think people flood to the cinema anymore because it's Steven uh, Steven Spielberg film in the same yeah. way they would do because it's a Christopher Nolan and uh, or Tarantino film. And the same with uh, the same with uh, Scorsese. Like I, I imagine the Irishman would be popular, but at the same time, I don't imagine there'll be millions of people wanting to sit for a three and a half hour movie. The same way. That mm. they well, the Tarantino's movies aren't exactly short. It's it's no. weird because Christopher Nolan's films are right, like they're kind of so so large and they're 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 kind of yeah. It's him and um, who else is it? It's it's people maybe like Michael Bay, James Cameron. That that that's that's the sphere that uh, Nolan's Nolan's in. Like his films are unabashedly blockbusters. What I'm saying with Tarantino's films is that they're not um, they're not they're, they're not anything other than a kind of uh, you know it, it, of like it's just kind of it's it's almost film for film's sake it's like independent it's independent cinema it's kind of at its most kind of pure right oh well i wouldn't say so i'd say they are inherently crowd pleasers or these are these uh, but that's irrespective that you can be that's irrespective of of whether or not well no because i feel he would make uh big budget movies if he had the uh budget to if obviously he's making film for adult and that has some constraints over the amount of money that people would invest in it because they know you know it limits the box office return 
but I do feel that his films are inherently meant uh, meant to be. Uh, he he envisions them seeing. Uh, he envisions them having a mass appeal, uh, particularly recently. I mean, once upon a time in Hollywood isn't a um, isn't a indie movie anymore. But it's an yeah. indie mentality, I think. Mm, I disagree, but fair enough. Why? Well, because I, I feel it's there. It's inherently done. I suppose you could say it's indie. Well, I suppose in order to do this, we're going to have to have a conversation about what it what an indie what it means to be an indie film, other than just you know how it's funded. But I think it, it sort of lacks that uh, that that kind of. Uh, Uh, telling a story for for story's sake, uh, where it, it seems to be deliberately. What does that mean? Us, it seems to be deliberately telling a story uh, in order to um, in order to create appeal for an audience. But telling a story for story's sake, like self, you're t- talking about one of the most in- self indulgent film directors of all time. Like this guy will put what? fucking feet shot in feet, foot fetish shots in in every every other frame. Like, well, yeah, well, I don't understand the distinction here. Distinction from what? From a film, a film being made for its own sake, and a film being made for an audience. Isn't every film made for an audience? What are we? I don't know what we're talking about. I thought we talking about the different uh, that it's not really an indie mentality. But if it being a film, I don't understand what a film for its own sake is. Because it feels like it's being made specifically as a crowd pleaser, where it does it, it doesn't. It, he's not. He's not. Um, He's. I don't know. I can't be bothered to talk about it anymore. Uh, shall we wrap it up? Yeah. So yeah, we are back officially. So we have an email address at uh, marpelpod.gmail.com and you can also uh, see us tweeting at Jack and Chef and uh, me and Kaka1. Um, I've let, I don't really use it anymore, but it's Kaka, I've, I seem to continue to be accumulating followers, so I'll, I'll still plug it anyway. It's um, Kaka Room and yours is uh, Jack M. Shep. Um, have, have, have there been any other interesting things that you've seen? Um, I saw uh, Hustlers on Thursday and Ad Astra uh, yeah. so uh, yeah they're alright awesome um, great cool so that's it um, yeah see you, see you next week yeah see you next week